listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Thank you for joining us again on Let the Bible Speak. These broadcasts are prepared for a local radio station in Philadelphia. They're also available on podcast. For those who listen on the radio, you will, of course, understand that today is Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. It's a very special day for every Christian. Every Sunday is a day when the Christian remembers the historical fact that Jesus rose again from the grave. The first day of the week was the day when the woman came to the tomb and found the angels and the grave clothes. They looked for Jesus but were told that he was not there but had risen. That is the triumphant message of the Christian life. He is risen. Every first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It is Resurrection Day. Yet, Beyond every Lord's Day, on our calendars we mark the Easter season and especially give consideration to the Lord's death and resurrection on the third day. And so today's broadcast is going to focus on the Bible's teaching on Christ's resurrection. It is my desire to to really summarise much of what the Bible says on the subject. We will move quickly, It, it will be brief and Certainly much would require further study and presentation. In simple terms, true gospel preachers preach Christ crucified. The doctrine of the death of Christ is vital and central in the Christian message. For the unsaved, it is vital that they understand that their souls are in eternal danger and the only hope is found in the death of Christ. Hence, Christ's death must be proclaimed to a lost world. The guilt of sin and the wrath of God requires the cross for pardon to occur and for sinners to be made right with God. Yet, with such an emphasis on the cross of Christ, we must never consider our Saviour as still being on the cross or even still being in the tomb. When you study the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, you see that every single sermon refers to the risen Christ. And so as we preach Christ crucified, we preach Christ crucified, yet risen indeed. And so let me read to the words of 1 Corinthians 15 and the first 17 verses, where Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some were fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, 
as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I laboured more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preached and so ye believed. Now if Christ be preached, that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. And thus says the word of God. And let's just briefly pray and ask for the help of God as we come to study the word today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel, that Christ Jesus faced the consequence of sin as he died on the cross for our sins. And yet we praise your name that he defeated death and rose again triumphantly the third day. We pray, O Lord, that you'd bless these truths to our souls today. May every hearer benefit from the gospel of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15 and the verse number 17 refers to faith. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Faith there refers to our subjective faith, our trust in the Saviour. And our trust in the Saviour will be of no benefit if he is not risen indeed. Our trust in Christ will be vain, that is, it will be empty, worthless, profitless, pointless, if Christ is not indeed alive. He died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. And if that message is not true, then we have no gospel and our faith is pointless. Indeed, in verse number 14, Paul also says, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. The resurrection is absolutely fundamental to the Christian message. Indeed, it is the distinctive of the Christian message that the Saviour is alive. Right now, he lives indeed. All of the other earthly religions, man-made religions, they do not proclaim to have a saviour who is alive. The message of the Christian gospel is exclusive. It is unique in that Christ died and rose again. Such, of course, was predicted in the Old Testament. As Paul says, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so again, if he is not alive, then the message of the Bible is not true. If there is no resurrection, there is no message. And of course, no cross would mean no salvation. But also, if the resurrection is not true, there is no salvation and no gospel. But to turn that around, if the resurrection is true, then the unsaved must ask themselves the searching question regarding truth. If Jesus Christ is indeed alive, then they must ask questions regarding the truth of the entire message. If the resurrection is true, 
then they must solemnly consider the subject of sin and judgment and the world to come. And so for the Christian, the message of the resurrection is of absolute fundamental importance. And I want to consider that importance briefly today as we think about this subject together. And I want to show you the importance of the resurrection with three separate lines of thought. First of all, let's think about the enemies of the event. The enemies of the event. Verse number 17 of this text in 1 Corinthians 15 begins with the word, and if, if, if recognizes the fact that some deny that the resurrection ever took place. In Acts 17, as Paul preaches in Athens, some mocked when they heard of the resurrection. The Sadducees in the Gospels, they denied the resurrection. And it seems to be the case that there were those in the Corinthian church who were saying that there was no such thing as resurrection. And if there is no such thing as resurrection, Paul says, then Christ be not raised. An event of such importance has been and always will be the subject of the attacks of the evil one. The evil one has sought to undermine the historical fact of the resurrection in so many different ways. The evil one, Satan, understands that if the resurrection is discredited, if there is some other explanation, then the whole house of the Christian faith comes tumbling down. The deniers of the event throughout the ages continue to peddle the same theories, although perhaps in different packaging. And there are three prominent efforts to deny the resurrection that keep on occurring in popular thought. First of all, there is the concept that Jesus didn't really die upon the cross. Such was the horrific nature of the treatment he received that he swooned or fainted under the pain of crucifixion. And the suggestion therefore is that Christ, in a state of great weakness, moved the stone from the front of the grave, overcame the soldiers, folded the grave clothes, walked to Emmaus and back to Jerusalem. That's a seven-mile journey each way. Then he appeared to the disciples as a conqueror of death. It implies that the soldiers experienced in the act of crucifixion made a mistake, that though they thought he was dead, he was not really dead. John records the events around the crucifixion when the Jews, because of the Sabbath day, sought Pilate to break the legs of Jesus in the crucifixion. And the soldiers came and they broke the legs off the two either side of Christ, but they came to Jesus and they saw in the language of John 19 that he was dead already and they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith there came out blood and water. And so the historical record of the crucifixion gives very clear indication that Jesus did not swoon or faint, but was truly dead. Beyond that, to suggest that he didn't die is to call Jesus a liar, that he was happy to have his disciples believe that he died and was alive. It also indicates that he didn't he didn't ascend into heaven. So when did he die and where is his body now? The concept of Jesus not really dying is simply a piece of wicked imagination and has no basis in the evidence. Another theory was that of the stolen body. 
That was the first effort that was used to deny the miraculous nature of the resurrection. In Matthew 28 verse 11 it says, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch, that is the soldiers, came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. There was the theory, saying the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus. Now once more, this doesn't do justice to the facts of the situation. The disciples were fearful and they were hiding and to suggest they stole the body was to suggest that they overcame the Roman guard. They then based their ministry and life upon something they knew wasn't true. The great majority of the disciples eventually gave their lives for the message of the resurrected Christ. It has been well observed that people will give their lives for something that they believe to be true. But martyrs will not come out of lies and falsehood. And so the concept of the stolen body again, does not give due place for the evidence that we have. The third theory regarding the resurrection is that those who saw the risen Christ were susceptible to hallucinations and it was some form of vision. They'll often comment on how the women were nervous and excitable and that they had a vision and saw Jesus in a vision. But when you read the Bible record, you see that Jesus made it clear that he was no phantom. That concept of him as a vision is contested by the gospel writers at the very beginning. He encouraged the disciples to touch him. He ate in front of them. And as we'll see uh, later on in this short presentation, the concept of hallucination does not do justice to the multiple witnesses of the resurrection that we have recorded in the Bible. And I suppose when you think of the attacks and the enemies of the event, we have to pause and ask ourselves the simple question, are we willing to believe in the supernatural? Is the concept of miraculous an obstacle to you believing the gospel message? I want to confront that. I want to admit that at this point. I do accept that to believe in the gospel, there must be a belief in the supernatural and in the miraculous Many of you will have been raised in a culture of reason and science. Science examines things that can be repeated. The scientist is told not to trust the one occurrence. If something happens once in the scientific world, it is to be repeated in order to corroborate the first event. If something is not repeatable, therefore it is not true. And such scientific reasoning has caused many to distrust the supernatural, distrust those things that are recorded once. But with God, nothing is impossible. And so it is vital for true faith that we give up on our pride. Many will go to any length to disprove the plain sense of the record and the data. They will believe any argument, no matter how improbable. The evidence points to the supernatural. And to deny the supernatural is to deny the evidence. But if the evidence points to God intervening in miraculous form, well then we must believe the evidence. And the evidence does indeed point to the resurrection. 
And so having thought about the enemies, uh, then let's proceed to think about these evidences. First, there is the evidence of the empty tomb. He is not here, was the Easter message. The tomb was empty. That fact was not just claimed by the disciples, but his enemies recognised that the tomb was empty. We've just read the account in Matthew 28, when the religious leaders sought to concoct a false theory as to the emptiness of the tomb. Now, the empty tomb does not necessarily mean resurrection. As we've noted, there are people who seek to bring other explanations for that fact. It is not the empty grave, but the resurrection of Christ that is the great gospel truth. But the empty grave and the resurrection are inseparable. You cannot deny the empty tomb and still have a living Lord. In light of what we've looked at above, there is no plausible explanation other than that he bodily and physically rose from the grave. If you would deny the gospel message, then you must give some reason as to why the tomb was empty. The second line of evidence is the presence of multiple eyewitnesses. The idea of being witnesses is very important. The term is used in the Bible and when we think of a witness we must think in terms of the courtroom. We must think of people giving evidence before a jury or a judge. In Acts 2.32, Peter in his sermon says, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. The apostles claimed to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. As they had watched their friend and their Lord go to trial and ultimately to the cross, so they also claimed to have seen him physically alive after his death. In the account of Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15, we have a, a record of the witnesses. Cephas, that is Peter, the twelve are mentioned. That's a term for the disciples, although at that time there were only eleven. There were five hundred brethren, and these were people who were alive when Paul wrote. There's no distinct record in the Gospels of this event, but it's likely to have occurred in Galilee. Jesus told the disciples, but after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And then in Matthew chapter 28, then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. And so it's likely that the appearance of Jesus to the 500 occurred in Galilee. We're also told that James, the brother of our Lord, saw the risen Saviour. We also understand that Paul claimed to see Jesus in that Damascus Road experience. What is interesting is that this list does not contain the woman and their role in finding the empty tomb. Now that does not deny their role. The gospel record is very clear regarding the important role that the women play in this event. But the list that Paul gives emphasizes men of sound men, men of integrity, and men of a great number. Paul is putting together a legal argument. In the times of his writings, the testimony of women was not admissible in court. And so he's emphasizing the fact that here are men who could give testimony in court if required to the risen Christ. Jesus appeared to groups and to individuals. He appeared at different times and in different places, and is therefore highly unlikely that all of these people were suffering from some form of hallucination. 
And so the eyewitnesses are very important when you think about the evidence for the resurrection. The other line of thought regarding the evidence is the effect the resurrection had upon the disciples and upon Saul of Tarsus or Paul. The disciples were changed. They were changed from being cowering and fearful to being fearless. They were changed from being powerless to knowing the power of God at Pentecost. They left the hiding place of the upper room and find themselves in the public square of Jerusalem proclaiming that those listening to them had been guilty of killing Jesus and that Jesus had risen again. As for Saul of Tarsus, we should not underestimate the impact that the resurrection of Christ had upon him. There are those who suggest that the two great proofs for the truth of Christianity are the resurrection and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Both, of course, are related. Any honest assessment of Saul will recognise an historical person. They will see this person who knew of Jesus, who knew of the claims that Jesus made to Messiahship, who knew exactly what that meant, but did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He felt the followers of Jesus threatened the very essence of the Jewish faith. So we find Saul breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Then within a few short verses, we find him preaching Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. And we find him confounding his hearers, proving that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Such a change is incredible. And what changed was that he met the risen Jesus. He met the resurrected Christ. And so the resurrection to Saul becomes a true event. Saul is not delusional, but his life is transformed. He takes on the name Paul and he's changed to the very point of martyrdom. He's willing to give his life for this message of the risen Jesus. Such a change in the disciples and in the life of Saul of Tarsus is only explainable by the truthfulness of the resurrection of Christ. And so though there are enemies to the event, the evidences are compelling that Jesus is indeed alive. And in light of that, let me just list the, the effects. Let me list the things that are true in light of this event. First of all, we proclaim the exaltation of Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 2 and the verse number 30 says this, Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. This is the account of David's testimony in the Old Testament. He's seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Peter then proclaims, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. We who believe in the resurrection, we proclaim an exalted Christ who rules this world. And though this world is full of confusion and sin, we believe that Christ has all authority and his kingdom is being built as souls come under submission to his reign. And one day we look to the truth that he who indeed died and rose again 
he who ascended into heaven shall indeed return and rule over all things. The resurrection is the foundation of the church's evangelism because we proclaim the message of a risen king. The exaltation of Christ arises out of the resurrection. The intercession of Christ also likewise. He ever liveth to make intercession for them. He saves us to the uttermost as he lives and prays for us. Our risen Christ intercedes at the right hand of God, whereby the benefits of his atonement is secured for all who come to trust in him, so that his exalted person is a person that intercedes for us, whereby we can know justification with God, forgiveness of our sins. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 that Christ was delivered for our offences and was raised again for our justification. The resurrection seals the work of Christ on the cross. That as Christ is risen indeed, so we know the Father is well pleased with the sacrifice of his Son. We rejoice that Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. We rejoice that that sacrifice was accepted by the Father, so we can know peace with God and forgiveness from all of our sins. Indeed, beyond that, we can also have the certainty of our future resurrection. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that sleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Those souls die and are buried. Those who trust in Christ shall rise again and shall reign with Christ forevermore. You see, dear listener, I proclaim to you today the truth of the resurrection. And the question is, will you believe what is true? He is risen, therefore faith is not vain. He is risen, therefore all who trust in him are not in their sins, but are forgiven, they are pardoned, and they are justified. Jesus is not dead, he is alive. Trust in him today and know the benefits of his death on your account, that you would know forgiveness and peace with God. And you'd have the certain hope, the sure and certain hope of the resurrection from the grave. Death has no sting. Death is defeated. Trust in Christ. Live now and live forevermore. May God indeed bless his word to all of your hearts today. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.